Hey family, you're locked into Meg Talks, the people's platform home to queer black content. So get ready as we take off our mask for some honest and candid interviews and real conversations. For this episode, I am joined by my mum. Yeah, that's it, my mum. And together we're going to have a really open, honest conversation about her experience of raising a non-binary black queer child. But before we jump into this fire conversation, mum, let's introduce you to the community properly. Come on, let's go. So, Mum, first and foremost, tell the people, where did you grow up? I grew up in southwest London, spent most of my time in the Wandsworth Borough, so that's where I, that's where I grew up. Yeah, so where were kind of like your main, your main areas where you lived, where you hung out? Well, um, up to primary school age, I lived in Brixton. I remember my first school being in Brixton Hill, and then we moved to um, Ballam. And that's my informative years from age five up until about 12. Mm. And then after that, we lived in Tootin. So so I think Ballam and Tootin are the two areas that I remember most growing up. Okay, so you're a true South, Southwest Londoner. So like what you guys have probably picked up already is that I'm second generation British. Like my mum and just like my dad, they were both born and raised in, in London. So kind of, let's go into like a little bit around what family life was like. How, what was the setup at home? The setup at home was there were five of us. My mum had five children, so it was pretty lively. Um, we entertained ourselves. There was always something going on. And when we each brought one friend home, there were 10 children in the house. <laughs> <laughs> so it's super, super busy. So super like, busy. So like, what's the split between our brothers and sisters? Right, there are um, three brothers and uh, one sister. And, and where do you fit in the pecking order? I'm the eldest, so I was kind of like the 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 mum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, like in the household, I mean, there's a lot of that's a lot of mouths to feed. That's a lot of people to manage. So, what was the economic situation at home with with Nan? Right. So this is uh, we're talking about the 1960s when I was uh, primary school age, mm. and um, I can imagine thinking back uh, to the situation from where I am now. <clears throat> it must have been pretty tight for money. Really, really tight. Mm. Um, my mum, she um, became a hairdresser uh, in the house, uh, <laughs> and that was a, a, a primary um, income, I think, for our family. My dad was around, um, but, you know, they weren't really t- together much, so it was pretty much um, a single-parent household. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you know what? Shout out to Nan. Shout out to Nan. And it's interesting that we talk about kind of coming from humble beginnings, you know, and really being able to maximise kind of just stretch, make the money stretch because I think when a lot of people meet you today they have no idea about what your background was like at all so all right so we get an understanding that you know big family mainly single parent household the 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 money was tight you know the money was tight but if we fast forward to let's say like your teenage years like I already know like guys there's crazy stories <laughs> so if you know me this is where I get it from but let's like are there any particular highlights or moments that stand out for you my teenage years I just remember them with a lot of fun um well I think now I say yeah we lived in kind of a, a subculture we created our own space mm. so as teenagers um a lot of us lived in the same area so there was always somebody to meet up with so we'd meet up as groups and be just hanging around outside the street because the last place we wanted to be was inside the house mm. and just having jokes and messing around and then we'd go to somebody's house probably where the parent wasn't there or at work or something and then we could really chill and not be interrupted so I just remember a lot of fun yeah. um, as a teenager and like what what did you do what was fun what did you actually do for fun besides like hanging out and stuff were there any particular things that well, you really enjoyed as a I mean as a a, a real young Youngster, um, people my age would remember the Saturday morning pictures. Okay. And the Saturday morning pictures was every Saturday there'd be a showing um, in all cinemas just for children the whole morning. Mm. So the whole of the area would descend on a cinema. Thousands of children, not an adult in sight, except for the poor man that was trying to keep us under control. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? And it was pure noise. You couldn't even mm. hear the film. So we used to do that. Um, in Tootin, we used to go to the RACS, the co-op, and they had a big hall upstairs. Mm. So that was our introduction to raving at probably about age 14, 15. Oh, yeah. So every Tuesday, we used to go down to the RACS. Yeah, uh, the in, RACS. In Tootin. Turn up. Yeah, with our DJs. <laughs> and we'd be there practicing the dances and, and dancing to what, our music. Oh, you were there so, dancing yeah, up? Yeah, yeah. No, it was a proper, proper rave. So like, you know, what? let's get into the raving side of things. Mm. Because let the people know I know the stories 
And for any of you that knew know me from what seventeen to what twenty nine thirty, I was turning up the whole week. Every weekend I was turning up. So this is where I get it from. This is. <laughs> And my mum sits here like butter wouldn't melt, you know. Let the people know. So like what what when you talk about raving, what was your experience? Where did you go? What kind of events did you go to? Okay, so RSCS was our our our, our place where you met, so you mm. got to know all the people in the area and surrounding areas because it was huge. Hundreds of kids used to go there. Mm. So from that, as we were growing up and you're becoming fifteen and sixteen, we used to go to clubs. So I remember we used to go to um there was one in Battersea, I can't remember the name of it now, Falcon Road, behind Clapham Junction Station. You wouldn't believe that. And that was our Friday meet that was our Friday meetup. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was just like uh it was a club. So, okay. you know, in our yeah, in that in our sort of sixteen to nineteen years, every Friday we'd roll up there, you meet all your people from Battersea, from Brixton, Shout from out. all the different areas. Yeah, we'd all meet up and mm. go and have fun, listen to music. We didn't really drink alcohol. Well I didn't drink alcohol though. Maybe the guys drank some beers. But we used to catch the bus there and uh walk home from Battersea to Tootin by this time. You know what? That's madness, you know. And when I think about it now, we're getting annoyed that we're waiting like eight minutes for an Uber and you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so like when you like in terms of like raving, what kind of music were you listening to and what what kind of what kind of um, clubs? Well, the clubs were pretty much um, they're homegrown. You can imagine because mm. um, we I never went to a mainstream club, so I okay. had no idea what a mainstream club was like. So everything that I experienced in terms of raving and music was homegrown. Mm. So that's when you know you'd have the um, the big speaker boxes that were big like you were five at the wardrobes. You were at the showbiz. <laughs> so yeah, so you'd have the wired up speaker boxes, and <laughs> you know, I Spy was um, our DJ of choice. Okay. Um, I can't remember the names of them, but there were a few of them around. I remember Mystery. Mystery. Well, Mystery was a bit later, okay. but I think in my teenage years, I Spy was was the one in, and we used to follow him around South London. Yeah, that people, she said he was the one, you know. Yeah, and I think, you know, what was really amazing, <laughs> no mobile phone. We never even had a phone in our house. So how we knew, we don't know. We just arranged that this was the place that we would come. Uh, or you'd meet up people in the street and we'd be heading in one direction and say, yeah, it there's really a party goes. going on somewhere else. So you go to one party. That sounds so Then lit. you leave from that and then you're walking, you're we called the trotters and uh, we groups of us these <laughs> <laughs> are going marching to the dance yeah we were so like i've got a question then so in terms of growing up in london when did you first encounter like the lgbt community and what yeah how what was your first experience of that well <clears throat> my first experience of it um though i had i wasn't conscious of it was that my brother who's a year younger than me was a gay man mm. Um, and he never really had girlfriends. Um, and he used his, his friend, his crowd was a real mixed crowd with people, um, of all cultures. So that was just different to my experience. Cause I was just around people who were pretty much largely from Jamaica. Mm. Um, so we knew that his world was, was different. I knew his world was different to my world. And, um, he used to, um, go to a club called the Embassy Club in Bond Street. Mm -hmm. And we used to hear about this Embassy Club. So, um, he invited us down. So it was me and my sister. There was like a group of us that used to go out. So we came to the Embassy Club in Bond Street. Mm. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was just like anything went down there. People were dressed <laughs> in all kinds of weird clothes and yeah. people just let loose and enjoyed themselves. And we mm. just had the best time because... There was no airs and graces, no particular identity or way to be. You just went and you enjoyed the music. And that really opened up a whole new world to mm. enjoyment outside of what we were used to in listening to our reggae, reggae and reggae groove music all the time. There's a whole nother world. So and what you, kind of music were they playing in there? It was kind of soul music, mm. um, some popular music, but mm. I think it was probably more the soul music that we could all kind of get into, which mm. was the bridge for everyone. Okay. No, that's that's interesting that you kind of had those earlier experiences and you were actually kind of open to going because I know there'll be so many listeners listening thinking your mum went to a gay dance. Like, <laughs> I know my head was blown. So the fact that you, you know, you went, you experienced it, were you then open to continue to like going into these spaces or was it very much just like a one-time experience? Well, I think, um, you know, I went with my brother and he i think we used to we went there a few times i remember one time he had um 
his birthday party there because he was mm. very much the Barclay Square, you know, the top end of life, which mm. we knew nothing about. What's Barclay Square? Uh, Barclay Square, it was, um, it's a really posh place in Mayfair, okay. by the back of all Central right. London. So th- I think we can all identify what Mayfair is like. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, of course, that's why the club he went to was in Bond Street, just mm. off um, Oxford Street. So I remember he had a birthday party there and it was just so outlandish. I mean, you just can't, imagine what it was like what were some of the things that you saw well i think some of the things we saw was just the way that people dressed and And what did they what were they wearing they were making all kinds of costumes and i remember one person it was very colorful yeah and somebody had like a this quilted cushion that somehow they turned into some headgear (laughs) the makeup was just so out of it i mean i think today you know if you look at the drag queens i think maybe that might have been the kind of early stage of all of that so if you imagine that kind of vibe that's what it was like and Mm. you know and we, we were just off the street in, in Balam and Tutin. And I remember one of my other brothers, you know, um, he had grown up in Derby without us, but had come to live in London. And he came with us and he goes, oh, my God, um, but that's a, that's a man. And they're dressed as a woman. And he just could not, he just, he was just so, conf- he was just so amazed by everything. But it was just part of the wonder and the enjoyment, really. And yeah, so we went there and I think with that's when I kind of got into soul music. Mm. So the 1980s soul scene. So I used to go uh, with my brother Randolph and we used to go to this club in Sutton. I can't remember the name. And that that's where being around him, you just were open to anybody. So, mm. you know, people of different races, um, all different types of people. And the thing that we just loved was the music. Okay. So, um, you know, gender and sexuality didn't really come into it. We just knew it was an, an open space, but it did make me open because um, I was quite close to my brother um, mm. and we never talked about mm. sexuality, but yeah. Okay. So like, do you know what? <clears throat> I remember a time when, you're, <laughs> well, if you didn't know, you know now, I used to make IDs. I used to make... <laughs> To get the man them into the club when we were when we were too young, and I remember the first time, and I said to you, "Oh, I went to heaven, or I'm going to heaven." The club, and you looked at me like it was like fire, like yeah, 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 in Charing Cross. I couldn't believe it. I said, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> I thought that. Do you know what it was? I told you that I went, and I was telling you what the experience was like, and you were like, "And you were like, oh yeah, I've been before." I, I couldn't. My head was blown at this point because. At that moment, I realised there was far more to my mum than I realised. Um, and I also remember a really interesting story about when you used to go to secret location raves and how um, how there was no lights or the DJ didn't set up or there, oh, was, yeah. some, there was some madness. Yeah. And so like everybody was just in this unknown place trying to try to catch a vibe and there weren't no music. Like, tell us a little bit about it. Right, okay. So, um, you know, we... We sort of graduated from house to clubs. And then by that time, this was, um, yeah, getting on to the mid-1980s. People were just into the music. Mm. And um, and then we used to follow other DJs and we used to follow them around. So because there were so many people, we started to have these warehouse raves. So you would just turn up mm. um, at, at a warehouse um, and, uh, and we just used to have the time of our lives. And we turned up at this warehouse um, one Saturday and the DJ hadn't arrived. <laughs> so we just thought, oh, well, you know, we just, everybody, I mean, you just open heart, open mind, just, yeah. we're just there to so enjoy So how many ourselves. people do you reckon there was there? Wow, I'd say there's probably about a thousand people. And there's no sound man? No music whatsoever. So everybody just started to have a drink and just have a bit of a vibe and, mm. you know, and, and we were just enjoying ourselves. And then we realised that our little, still no music. And then, after about two hours, what? So we're not going to have no music. So we just kind of like made our own entertainment and just stayed there and enjoyed ourselves till eventually we just went. Do you see that, people? <laughs> so you see where I get it from. But this that shows a real difference in generation because let people turn up and there's not no sound man. People are going back to the cloakroom and taking up their things and leaving. Like the fact that you guys were like so into creating your space, creating community and being able to kind of hold a vibe amongst yourself and not being so reliant on being entertained. I think sometimes that's where, you know, as a millennial generation, that we struggle because we're so, we're spoilt for choice. Mm. So it's somewhat, if, you know, if we don't like one event or distance serving us, we'll just go somewhere, somewhere else, man. Mm. So I I think me coming into the world as a queer non-binary person, 
I had there's all of this history and legacy that kind of has paved the way in a space for me far before I was born. Do you know what I mean? And it just I'm so glad that you had those experiences and that you're able to see the variety and diversity in people so that as I became an adult, you could then understand and recognize the diversity and variety in me. But um, before we get on to talking a little bit about parenthood and raising me, let's get on to how did you meet my dad? Right, well, you know, we talked about um, going to that club in uh, Club <laughs> Junction on a Friday. <laughs> it's called Providence House, I just remember. Providence, oh. Providence House, underneath um, the railway bridge behind Club Junction Station. Mm. Very different place then. <clears throat> and I used to, um, we used to go there. And like I said, we used to go as groups of people. So um, by that time, I was living in Tooting and he was living in Balham. And, you know, we all merged. And that's how I got to know your dad. We knew similar people because... The, his friends who I went to school with, though we went to second different um, schools, mm. primary schools. And so I, I just kind of got to know him. And your dad was always the one that was giving everybody the jokes and entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> the real joker. And um, I don't know how we kind of got together, but yeah, we, we just kind of got together. But then, you know, at 15, you're not really, the boys are still being boys, aren't they? And the girls yeah. are being a little bit more serious. So, mm. you know, I'd be there all kind of serious and trying to look nice and he was like <laughs> fooling around. So basically you're trying to do, do the stush. <laughs> yeah. You're doing up stush. <laughs> So what was the kind of time lapse between obviously you guys meeting and having me? And obviously I know, but this is more for the people. Right. The time year lap was something like 15 years. Wow. Um, and we just became really, really good friends. We were very mm. good friends. Um, so, you know, he was my confidant. I was his confidant. And we kind of grew up from going to the nightclubs in Providence House to um finishing our studies to learning to drive and getting our first jobs mm. and you know and had other relationships with other people because we were mm. just friends and um and yeah and then he we came together in when i was about 29 30 mm. and uh and thought well maybe this is our time so you know that's how it happened so we kind of really grew up together mm, and mm -hmm. got to that point where you know people are thinking about maybe settling down and we thought yeah maybe this is what it should be mm. oh mum that thank you for kind of taking us down memory lane it's always um really meaningful to me i think always just hearing the stories like i never get tired of hearing the stories understanding where i come from um and what the culture was at that time and the things that you enjoy because i recognize that <clears throat> just like you I love to rave, you know. I, guys, this will come on another episode, but my mum used to work in a club on um, wearing a leotard. On, <laughs> you, what's it, using roller skates, serving drinks? No, I wasn't in roller skates. I was in high heels, high black heels. fish Oh, did I make tights. it up? I thought it was a roller dance, my bad. <laughs> you see? So that, that, you know, I've definitely got that energy of that partying, wanting to be out, wanting to be social, having a good time. And like my mum was saying, my dad is a joker. And you guys know me, I love a banter. I love a banter. So just to help people to understand where you're at now, you know, so over the past 18 months, what would you say, like, the two biggest highlights have been in your life? Right, the last 18 months. Well, <clears throat> I became um, the mayoress of Lewisham, ba -ba -ba -ba! which came absolutely out of nowhere. And um, I was approached and asked um, by the mayor if I would be the mayoress alongside him. Mm. And um, I was just so shocked. I didn't even know what to say. So I said, mm -hmm. well, I have to think about this and walked out with a piece of paper in my hand that I went in to talk to him about and did forgot all about right now. <laughs> you forgot the notes. <laughs> yeah. And I just got to the phone. I said, Megan, you never know what just happens. Mm. They've asked me to be the mayoress of Lewisham, but I'm definitely not going to be doing that. Mm. Um, you know, I'm going to be seen like a sellout. I'm on the other side, which really didn't suit me. Do you know what? Just on a side note, I love the fact that there's there's this thing about not being an op and not selling out and stay true to the coach. I've got to respect that. Mm. Mm. So I, I had made up my mind I was not going to do this. Mm. Um, there was more important work that I had to do. Um, and I wasn't going to be the face of you know an institution mm. um so I, as as a black person because mm. growing up all my life 
you know, it was very easy to find myself in that situation. And this was just too important um, a role, really. Mm. Um, and at a time of my life, um, 18 months ago, when we're looking at the situation and thinking how bad it had got for black people since 2010, when everybody was having a much better time. So mm. I thought, no. But when I rang Megan uh, and said, look, I, I'm not going to do this. She said, boy, mom, this, you have no choice. <laughs> this is something you have to do. You have to be out there. You need to be seen. People need to know that you're there and to just give us some hope and to show us that this is where we can aspire to. Mm. And she said, this, you, you know, you said to me, there's no choice. So if Megan said there's no choice, then there's no choice. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true because for me, there, there are so many layers when it comes to you as a person. I think I've got to an age where I can see you outside of the lens of being a mum. I can see you as um, a woman, a black woman, um, an entrepreneur, a business owner, um, a leader within the community, that there's so many different hats that you wear. And I just think that what happens is, um, especially with like, the older generation, so people that would be my parents, say, or my aunties, that you guys are so humble with it. Like, you guys are very much on the, just keep quiet and do what needs to be done. Not too much kerfuffle and stuff, but I think to myself, do you know what, step step into your greatness at the end of the day. And I just wanted to encourage you and I just wanted other people to see what I saw in you. And I know that if I was inspired by that, and which I definitely what have been and still am, I know that it could inspire so many people. So I'm glad it's just visibility. You know, you're good people and not there's not enough good people in government and politics. I said it. Um, and it's time for people that are uh, more suited, best suited better suited mm. in fact yeah and i think place. the thing is <clears throat> you know i we we just were humble mm. and you kind of like just kept your head down throughout life and, and just got through um and i i had um i heard somebody talk it was a black woman and she was um head of crown prosecution service ordinary woman she said she never went to no fancy primary school or university she said mm. but you know what she said you can't hide good work mm. it always surfaces and it always comes through you just have to be really focused and you just keep working and that's exactly what happens. And I think, you know, you have to, in that kind of situation, it's very easy to kind of lose sight of, of who you are and what you're there to do. Mm. And I think there is an element of just being humble and just remembering where I come from. And I just rem think back to the days, you know, when I was six years old, uh, lighting the gas um, light mantle in our in our house so that we could have light at mm. a time when everybody else had electricity for light and thinking this is where you came from mm. um, and you know what life was really like and never forget that because for that way you can empathize with people who are still struggling right 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 so it's important to hold on to those values and just remember that but then you know I think the current situation has made me look and think well really Barbara you're in a quite a privileged situation mm. and it just shocked me because I never realized thinking what me in a privileged situation from where I came from mm. how on earth did that happen but it just goes to show you know you have to put the work in there is no shortcut I always say that mm. and if you put the work in and stay focused you know you'll get to where it is that you want to be and even higher because I never would have thought that would have been happened to me it was so it was such an honor to see um you um I don't even know what they call it you know when they have that kind of initiation process where you go, um, she's sitting in front of all these people on this stand with this badge in front of her saying may arrest, and mum's out there with a with a cultural print on, with a fresh shape up, fresh cut, looking looking like black excellence, black drip. It was just I was sitting in the front row, just you know, like those proud parents with their legs crossed, just clapping, <laughs> clapping fast. <laughs> I was, and I looked around, and I could just see so many white faces, but I could see so many faces from our community um, that came out to support you, and it just, it was overwhelmingly excellent. Um, and I just wish, and I just hope that, you know, you can re, just recreate those moments time and time and time again, because I just see that your journey is so far from finished in terms of doing the good works and stuff like that. So, um, woo, that feels like we've really unpacked kind of where things are. Actually, one thing I wanted to ask you, so what are you doing now? So you were doing the mayoress stuff up until this year. Yeah. So I, what are you doing <clears throat> now? I am, um, I mean, I run a, a social enterprise called Urban Dandelion, a community interest company. And um, 
my logo is a, a dandelion. I'm sowing seeds of change. Mm. And I work with communities to uh, for them to bring about the change that they want to see. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the time people will look at you or look at the situation and say, oh, right, so this is what they need and it's not the right thing, which is usually mm. the case. So, um, and I love doing that work. And, you know, once you start talking to people, they're full of ideas. They know exactly what the problem is. They know exactly what needs to be done. They probably want a bit of um, information, some encouragement, some support, fill the gaps with them. And listen, they just turn into butterflies and fly off and do all kinds of amazing things. So I love my work. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I'm doing that now. Um, advisor, I'm an advisor to the mayor of Lewisham still mm -hmm. on the health inequalities for black people. I mean, it's absolutely shocking when you see the, the um, stats. So with all the stuff that happened with COVID-19 and saw who it's going to impact on most people with diabetes and all those kind of mm. illnesses, I just knew that we were going to be in for a bad time. So I'm there to, you know, just provide information to people. I'm out there still pushing the word and holding people to account, saying yeah. you've got a responsibility for us. So Tell I'm them. still doing that, definitely. Do you know what? It's, it <clears throat> excuse me. I'm just so proud. Like, I'm so, so, so proud. And definitely check her out. Urban Dandelion um, is the business name. So definitely go check mum out and see what she's all about. She's an absolute change maker, an absolute community enabler. And yeah, I've got some big shoes to fill, as everybody always tells me. So let's get into what it was like becoming a parent. You know, so you find out you're pregnant. I'm about to arrive. How are you feeling? I was feeling um, really exciting. I'd enjoyed being pregnant. It went to Holland and travel all over the place. Um, <laughs> and I got a photograph of being really heavily pregnant in Venice. So you were well-traveled even before you were born. Hey. Yeah, so I was really looking forward to it. Now, okay. And so was I planned? Was I a planned child or did I just pop up? You just popped up. But um, it was a time with me and your dad were thinking, yeah, we're going to come together after all this time. So mm. this was like, a, you know, an a gift oh that's cute so like as if you think about from the ages of maybe like four years old up until maybe like nine what what was i like as a kid um you were a very lively kid <laughs> very lively kid you know i just gave up the idea of tv or anything so we used to um be out all the time Mm. So um, after I picked you up from school and I had to prepare meals that only took 15 minutes to prepare because that was the longest that you would sit still. And then we just were immersed in your world, really, um, which I loved being part of your world, reading books, um, listening to music, singing songs, mm. walking around and just enjoying the elements. If it was raining, we'd be out walking in the rain. We spent a lot of time going to Greenwich. Uh, good old Greenwich Park, Greenwich. maritime. Yeah, and walking all down by the riverside. I South remember Bank. Sitting in a freezing cold um, bar uh, with our hot chocolate because we were outside and was it was that, so cold was that near it was like in a pub garden near the cutty suck yeah exactly i there. remember that we must have been one of the only people out on the road because it was so cold we're definitely the only black people out <laughs> <laughs> but you never seemed to feel the cold i just couldn't imagine i was always it. hot i was always wanting to take off my coat and you're like zip my coat out yeah so yeah and south bank uh, we had amazing times there was nothing in the south bank at the time except the royal festival hall and, and the bookman and the bookman and the, and British the pizza film man Institute. Yeah, pizza, one pound for a slice. Yeah, that was yeah. our saviour. That was the only food available then. And we used to just love walking up and down and really running around, looking at the river. And Megan used to just chat to everybody. And she'd say, <laughs> oh, that person was really friendly, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> so I was very, very talkative. Very. So, like, in terms of, like, my imagination, creativity, what was I like? You were just so curious and everything that you saw was just like so exciting mm -hmm. and you just wanted to know what was that all about and you'd be asking endless questions you'd be describing something uh, you just could not stop and I say all right Megan just for five minutes if you could just, just keep quiet for five minutes and you'd after one minute goes no 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 but I just have to tell you this before I forget <laughs> I remember being um in the car outside the garage and the corner shop um on Sandhurst Road 
And I remember you said, we're going to play a game. Let's see who could keep quiet for the longest. I lasted like four seconds. I was like, I've got an idea. <laughs> <laughs> but I think so you like, were just very curious and mm. um, imaginative, you know, and I made up my mind from a very early stage that I would just let you be the person who you were. Mm. Um, and, you know, and just immerse myself. And I, I had a lot of fun alongside you. You were so funny. Mm-hmm. You used to say to me, oh, mum, why are people always laughing at me? I said, no, Megan, you're so funny. You just make people laugh. I said, I think you have to grow up and be a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, was there any kind of um, sign of me being that like tomboy? Well, you know something? I um, brought you up um just to be the person that you were mm. so initially i thought no i'm not buying no dolls um for megan and just none of the stereotype dressing and stuff but i did i think i bought you a black barbie mm. um imani yeah. with the interchangeable weaves that's right <laughs> 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 but you did equally have a car or or anything and um so i just kind of let kept everything really neutral and i didn't bring you up to be learning how to cook or do all those domestic things no mm. though you did cook um because, i could cook a mean food yeah because you just wanted to and yeah. i just let that happen so yeah mm. so there were no signs but i just i just thought you know let her be who she is uh, mm. and i didn't think about um sexuality at that time but i did have a manager um and she um was a, a gay woman in mm. fact she was um bisexual so you know her life was something that was really not at all like I could ever imagine. Mm. But she was my boss and she was such a nice woman. Mm. So you kind of like cut through and just get to know that person. And she was so open about herself and her life and brought her everyday, you know, things into work. Mm. And it just Mm. made you realise that, you know, our idea of the stereotypical mother and father and and, and children and that, that actually wasn't a reality. It was one reality, but not the only reality. That's fire. So, like, looking into me as a teenager, so, you know, I was, for those that don't know, I was very uh, into sports, into football, into running. I was into my performing arts. Um, shout out to Second Wave and the Albany. Um, I loved it. Dancing, singing, prancing around, just doing the absolute most with my energy. So, if we think about maybe from age, say, 13 to 19 now, what changes did you see? Well, um, you were definitely your own person. Um, and I, I remember at 15 saying, my daughter has moved out and I have somebody else that's moved into my house and I don't <laughs> even recognise who this person was. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, up until that point, I'd given you so much freedom, um, a bit of freedom, but not as much as I would like. And I remember you saying to me, Mum, when will I be able to go to Oxford Street by myself? So I said, well, I'm not quite sure. She goes, well, I think 15 is going to be the age. And that was the age. And I switched, just switched. Mm. And Megan just became herself. Mm. Um, and, and how did you, how was that? Was that easy to transition or did you find that challenging? It was really hard. Mm. Really, it was one of the hardest times in my life. Mm. Um, because um, you were off doing what you were doing. I didn't know where you were. I didn't know who you were with. And at that time, because I was working in the community, I could see everything that was going on among, for uh, for young black um, people at that time. So I knew what was out there. And I was just so terrified. I've never been so terrified in my life, I've got to say. Mm. So I was just really scared. But then what could I do? Um, and I just thought to myself, you know, people who judge parents and say that a child is based on the, on, um, on, on the way that they've been brought up. And I thought, you know, that's such rubbish. Um, you know, a young person has got to be themselves. And I, I put myself back to when I was 15. Mm. And my mum had no idea where I was. Mm. She didn't know I was in um, Providence House uh, with all my <laughs> friends and your dad. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, and I think, like, thinking back, there was... Because many people now look at my relationship with you because everybody knows Megan and her mum. Like, we just roll as a team. Like... Um, but I don't know, like, the, it was an absolute uphill struggle with me. It really was. And I think with hindsight, I'm able to recognise that it was a fight for my freedom. And I felt that all of these rules, expectations, way of being, not necessarily just from at home, but at school, within the community, everything. I was just like, I just want to be myself. Like, I'm tired of being told what to do and who to be. And that struggle really was kind of the clash of mum being mum and Megan transitioning into someone else. And it was funny because um, 
we had a conversation probably six months to a year ago and we unpacked the mystery. Like, what was Megan doing? And I was like, I was chilling with my, my main G, my, my main G, G, my friend's name's G, uh, my main homie G, and we were just playing Grand Theft Auto. We were playing Grand Theft Auto. At this point, we weren't even smoking weed. And probably later on into my 18, we started smoking weed, hanging up, but we weren't actually doing anything wrong. And I think about the grand scheme of things of what young people could be doing. We were just hanging out and gonna, having a good time. So it's, I'm glad that we've had all of these opportunities to discuss and come to that reconciliation because as a child, you're not thinking about, you know, your parents are worried or they're scared. Like, you don't care. They're just killing the vibe. They're dead in the vibe. And they're just embarrassing you. They're doing all kinds of wild stuff, catching you out. They're like FBI agents. And it is like <laughs> trying to dodge your parents um, just to try and live a life that's authentically And I think, for, you yours. know, as a parent, your, your, your role, you feel your role is to protect your child. And, you know, the thing was you had to get an education because black children just were not getting the education. And you had to, if you didn't get your GCSEs, I'd failed you. Guys, she's you. not playing. I was up till three o'clock in the morning doing coursework with this woman on my back. Yeah, I Mom was. was serious. And I remember one time when, you know, Megan was just like, had lost it completely and I'd lost it completely. I still got a crack in the, in the bedroom door upstairs oh, when you yeah, slammed yeah. it really hard. And I had to ring your dad and say, look, you need to come and we need to deal with this. She has got to get her GCSEs. And yeah, so I think once you, once you got that foundation then you can build on that. But if you don't even have that later on in life and you're thinking you're starting from scratch, I thought there's no way I'm going to let that happen. And I think that was when the fight really started, I guess. But, um, you know, I couldn't expect Megan to understand, but I was out there the other end seeing what was happening with the young people who didn't even have that. I'm thinking, yeah. no. I did, all I could just say was, Meg, I just don't want you to be disappointed in your Do you life. know what? It's funny because that's a big fear that I have now is just being disappointed in life. But I don't want to be disappointed in myself. I don't want to be disappointed from the life that I've been given with all the opportunity that it brings. I don't want to disappoint um, you, my dad, my stepdad, Colin, like they're my community. There's so many people that have been behind me um, in the support and the rearing of me, you know, so that kind of has always stuck with me. But looking at kind of my transition, so I came out to you when I was 15. So I think I was like year 10, year 10, year 11. Um, so firstly, did you see that coming? It kind of made sense. Um, I didn't see it coming. Mm. Um, and I just thought I was just felt happy that I had just kept a really open mind about everything. Mm. So it just meant that when you came out to me, it was just like, well, no, I didn't see that coming. Um, and I didn't expect that. But then it made no difference because you're my daughter. And anybody who knows mm. me knows Megan, and Megan's my heart. So the fact that my heart um, was coming out to me and telling me that she was a, a gay girl, it's another dimension to her. Mm. Um, and and I, can, I, can I quickly ask, so when, in, in, kind of looking at the times when I came out up until, let's say, like, my, my early 20s, how did you see my physical appearance start to change and transition? Well, I think it was, at first you used to be kind of girly with your little top with your... My with little zip-up top. Your zip-up little... top with your fur around the collar. <laughs> <laughs> she mean round the hood, you know, not round the cuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, and then you started to wear, like, tracksuits mm. um, and, uh, and trainers and looking more like a, a boy. Mm. Um, and then, um, and I think then your behaviour started to take on mm. that of, of, of a boy. And, um, you know, and teenage boys aren't always, um, I think I had this thing around men and boys treating girls and women well. Mm. And, um, and I hadn't, I'd, I just brought Megan up to be a woman that wasn't going to be treated well by mm. a boy or a man. So now here was mm. my daughter who was um, like a boy and presenting like a boy. And mm. I hadn't prepared her for that. Mm. Uh, and I have really strong views about how uh, boys and men should treat women. And we hadn't had that conversation. Right. So that was, a, that was a gap for me. And I just thought, you know what? In this situation, I have no idea. All I have to be guided by is that I love my daughter. Mm. Um, and it brought an added layer of concern because I just think, well, what does this mean for her? And what is it that she's facing? And what? how will I need to support her? And 
where do I get information? Who can I talk to? And like everybody mm. knew, I just told everybody. Yeah. And asked about me, and I said, yeah, no, she's um, you know, she's gay, and she has um, whoop, whoop. a girlfriend. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, I remember the day when you came. She came to the house, and she had a. a Big jacket on and big tracksuit and very tall. Basically, yeah, I was dating a stud. My first, my first ever relationship was with a stud, and the person rolled up to my mum's house in um, a grey, I think it was a grey Timberland or academic tracksuit with some grey Timberlands with a grey um, new era hat and a grey do rag. Mm. So instead of bringing her, bring home a man. I've got, a, I've got a, a, a girlfriend that's masculine presenting and for my mum she probably didn't even begin to understand what that so I think I was still very much in my feminine energy at yeah. that point yeah. I hadn't identified my tomboyish energy but when I used to look at my when I say that re relationship was probably like six to eight months or something like that it wasn't long it's long for when you're you know 15 and my girlfriend lived in East London and I was going up to East London and her family just embraced me it was like the ideal scenario but I thought I was a big person now you couldn't tell me <laughs> What? Mm. Um, so I think that's is very interesting to kind of see, to kind of seeing your reaction because you just took it on the chin. It was like, oh, okay, then cool. I don't even remember the conversation really. I think I just said it. I was like, oh, um, that was my girlfriend that came around or something very flippant. Mm. And you just didn't make a big deal. You acknowledged it, mm. but you didn't make it a thing. And I think that then created the pathway um, ahead for me to really just be open about that. And I think. My mum made it very, uh, made a very good point about how to deal with women, um, and I was just an absolute f boy. If everyone <laughs> knows what that is, for my if you don't know, I was just being a waste man. Mm. You know, I wasn't respectful. I was, I didn't know how to interact with girls my own age. I didn't, I, I didn't know what they wanted. I didn't know what they respected. I didn't know what they were looking for, and I only had um, the people around me and celebrities to go by, like how you treated, how black women were treated at that time. I, I I just had no idea as to what to do. So I think it's a very good point because I I treated, I, I've had a bad track record of not showing up for the women and the girls that were in my life when I was younger. And I think we'll go into talking a little bit around me growing up and different types of relationships that you've seen me um, kind of get into in my later, in my later, later years. So, I have another question for you, Mum. So, when it came to my like dating and girls coming to the house, like, what what did you think about that? Well, it was just I, I think you know you were at that that stage where you're going to bring your your partner to the house, and mm. I had long accepted that you were going to bring girls to the house, mm. so that was just part of it, and. You know, my whole family just embraced it too. So mm. they'd be saying, oh, you know, who's Megan's girlfriend? And, <laughs> you know, it was just, you know, the normal conversations you'd have about your your, your teenage um, child and, and them going into relationships. They were exactly the same. Mm. Um, and uh, so, and I suppose it's because I just accepted it and people just, well, there's nothing to accept. That's just who... Mm. That's who you're, you're, you're I made an announcement. I was just announcing to people and just letting them know this is what you can expect from here on out. Mm. Like, it, there, I don't think there was ever a moment for me in my coming out or sharing with kind of the family of me asking for their approval or looking for their acceptance. Mm. It was very much, this is what's going on. This is how it's going to be from uh, here on out. Just what I let you know. Mm. You know, so it was, it was, so I mean, with girls coming to the house, it's just like, if she was a girl bringing boys to the house, it was exactly the same. So mm. there's rules about the bedroom. Mm. So she had her own bedroom. And she just <laughs> on the door every now and again. <laughs> uh, that ninja tiptoe up the stairs. You didn't even hear the... All you hear is... <laughs> doors open. They even... Wait for, come in, it's... Open. <laughs> and then, um, yeah. And then if they came to the house, they would just enjoy, to enjoy and relax. So if mm. we're eating, we're all eating together. You get mm. to to know them and um, yeah, they were part of my daughter's life. So they were part of our life. So people came and it was, you know, free and easy, not not a free for all, but you mm. know, you just come and enjoyed the house and people respected the house. They respected me. Um, and yeah, it was all To be fine. fair, your house un, um, un, un informally became kind of like <laughs> the, the black queer youth HQ because <laughs> 
<laughs> it was the unofficial HQ because I had all of my friends coming over. Um, you, you'll hear me mention G a lot. They are an essential part of this story. And G's going to be coming on the show um, to kind of give their account of what growing up was like um, in my life mm. kind of thing. Mm. And I think, you know, with certain girls, you look at that, you, them, you think, boy, I, I, you know, I, I hope that's not the person that she's going to want to settle down with. And I always used to say, it's not that a person's a bad person, they're just not the right fit for you. And if you're not oh, right I used to say other, that a lot. You're like, yeah. I don't think she's for you, man. You know, if that's not for you. And then there's some girls you just like, they went deep to your heart and you're just thinking, yeah, I, this is the one I would really like her to settle with. But <laughs> if that wasn't her choice, that wasn't, that wasn't her choice. And, you know, mm. I used to kind of, that build relationships um, with uh, the girls you brought home. But then after a while, I realised that probably wasn't a wise thing to do because if the relationship didn't work, then it made it kind of it made it made kind of um, difficult. But then I felt that as a, a black woman and a mum, you know, I don't know what their situations were like at home, but it was just a place where people could come and just be themselves mm. um, and just to give that love. I mean, naturally, these were <coughs> girls that were the same age as my daughter. So... I felt for them like I'd feel for 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 Megan, like for you. So, you know, that's something I just couldn't help myself. And, you know, and some of them, you know, they're still in touch. If they see me, they'll say hi mm. or on Facebook. And, and I mean, with G, Gabriella, um, she lived just a few they, streets away. They, pronoun they. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, so she was very much a part of my life anyway. And we used to, as growing up, we used to go carnival together, mm. the three of us. And then we'd split Yeah, off, that's true. And, uh, yeah, I don't know what we used to do. And she used to come around the house. And I used to be so proud of her, what Mom, she was the doing. Mum, they and they and them. Mm? They and them. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah so yeah. I was pr so, proud of, um, so proud of them. Mm. So, and, uh, you know, and it was just, um, yeah, it's, it's just like, I, they just felt like an extension of my family, to be honest. And and that, that, that for me created this safe space and this sense of community at a very early age. And it, and it ricocheted that I never gave two craps about what anyone thought about my identity or my sexuality. I just did not care. And I think that you built such a fortress around me in terms of making sure that I felt comfortable and felt loved, even when you didn't understand, just acknowledging that you didn't understand, but it's okay, nonetheless, we'll figure it out. Um, I, re I really think you shielded me from the family as well. Not that the family ever did anything wrong, but I think the way that you dealt with me, the way that you spoke about me um, and my identity really set the tone for other people in terms of how that they should treat me. And, you know, from a youngster till now, I've always been kind of the baby to a certain group of the cousins, you know? <clears throat> and I grew up with them like brothers and sisters and nothing has ever changed. My relationships with my aunties, my uncles, um, the extended family, it's all love. Um, and I'm just so thankful. And, you know, just as we wrap up now, for me, I thought it was just so important to share this conversation because me and my mum have these conversations all the time. Um, and there is a narrative around um, the relationships that um, individuals from the Cutie Park um, community, what their relationships are like with their parents and their family. So I just wanted to really just create a platform for us to have a really open conversation. I'm not always very good at being vulnerable um, at all. So this was for me to share a bit about where I've come from, for you guys to really get to know me, um, to really just create some space for my mum as well. Like, I love her so much and she's been such a big part of this journey and still is. But there's going to be a part two to this. So I think you guys are going to like this a lot. So for part two, we're going to look at the adult years. What What is it like being um, a parent who, who now identifies as a non-binary queer individual? Um, and what you've kind of learned along that way and what we've learned together. And guys, I tell you to check in, lock into this next episode because it is bant. Because me and my mum, my mum's become my travel companion on an annual basis. So I do a birthday trip with my mum, often between seven to, uh, seven to 14 days. And it goes off. <laughs> like, I can't help but be myself. And trust me, there's pure queer tales where my mum has been there to see certain things or certain girls are coming to talk to my mum about me. So tune into part two where we really get into um, the adult dynamics between me and my mum. But um, I just wanted to thank you for coming down, mum. Oh, thank you. It's, it's great to come and, and just talk about it and to share the story because, 
you know, one thing I've learned from the last 18 months is, is just the importance of, of sharing your stories. And I'm quite an open person because, mm. you know, there are people experiencing all kinds of things, mm. uh, and particularly amongst the black community, and you don't get the space mm. to talk. Mm. Um, and you feel you have to stay within certain norms and, and to be seen to be doing certain things. And I'm just there to, to just talk about my myself and my experience. And it's great for us to talk about our experience together mm. because, you know, I think the, the greatest thing is family and, um, and you know, the richness and the beauty of a relationship between um, a parent and a child. And, you know, it's, it's just got to be the best. Um, so, you know, just make the most of the opportunity. You mm. know, there's nothing but good that comes from it. And, you know, and, you know just, to, just to kind of echo that is so important to have people around you um that are truly just invested in you and they care about your well-being they're caring about your future what you're getting up to who you're around and i and i recognize that you know what we have here mum is an absolute privilege is an honor and a privilege because some people's parents and family are dead serious that they're not they're not entertaining that individual because of their identity and their sexuality so i just want to bring some light into the room to say that, you know, there are different stories. This is my story. This is my mum's story. Um, I'm going to bring a few people on board to kind of share a little bit more around um, for you guys to get to know me before I start to interview and we start to get into other people's story from the community. So, um, mum, thank you. I love you. Um, it has been an incredible experience. So, people, thank you for tuning into the first episode of Meg Talks. Um, and so this is just the first of this particular series, um, and there will be a number of, um, so there will be a lot of content to come just around creating meaningful content for the black queer community. Guys, we're out here. Thank you, and love you to bits. Thank you. And just the last thing, where to find me so you can find me on Instagram, uh, Meg Talks Online on Twitter again Meg Talks Online so I'll catch you guys soon take care each and every time it's love <laughs>